Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. I felt all of you should know before I get started this morning that we have officially started rewarding those who would like to sit in the front row with nice cushy chairs. Just keep that in mind. On May 8, 1945 in Berlin, the German commanders of the Nazi army signed the German instrument of surrender, ceasing active military actions and operations. The war was finally over, at least it was for Europe. Those of you who know your history, two months later, on September 2nd, that's yeah, two months-ish, um, aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, the Japanese would sign similar papers, thus ending the war in the South Pacific. And now, the war was finally at an end. And as was appropriate, there was great joy, there was great relief, and also a fair amount of sorrow and mourning as well. After six years and one day of declared war, unfathomable, that's a tough word, amounts of lives lost, unthinkable atrocities, including concentration camps, genocide, sons and daughters being lost forever, homes destroyed, and even two atomic bombs being dropped on cities in Japan. The world was now at peace. Was that true? I mean, really? Did a, did, a, did a switch just flip one day? And suddenly all those hostilities, all the things that had existed just the day before when these people were at war with one another were now gone? Were these men and women who had spent the last six years and even several years before that at war with one another, now truly at peace? I mean, it's a funny word, isn't it? Peace. Whenever we use it, typically we mean something like calmness or serenity. You know, you conjure up images of maybe resting. Some of you like to fish, sitting out in a field somewhere, maybe sitting across the table with a friend over a cup of coffee or tea. But then at other times we use the word peace to describe times where those images are hardly applicable, like at the end of a war. Or maybe after an argument with a family member when hostilities are still high, we call it peace. So I have a question for us to consider here today. Is that the type of peace that is spoken of whenever the angels came to the shepherds and said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Is that the type of peace that our children just think about whenever they sang peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled? For the purposes of this sermon, I'm going to call that type of peace coexistence, and I think you all understand why I'm using that word. Sometimes we call coexistence, or the 
absence of hostility or active warring against one another, peace. So does the coexistence found between, say, the U.S. and Russia for the last half century, does that capture the thought that we've talked about in those songs? I do not believe it does. I want you to think about the goal of war for a minute. When two nations go to war, there is very little consideration for the well-being of the opposing nation. Perhaps some motivations for war are sinister and others more just, but in either case, the goal is the same. You want your side to win, which means the other side has to lose. And oftentimes that looks like we want to claim this territory, regardless of whether it was the territory that was ours and we're now defending it, or it's the territory that we're trying to take from you, and we either achieved that or we didn't achieve that, therefore we won or we lost, and now because we've decided to end this war, we're at peace with one another. Does that goal of war and the end of it describe the type of peace that we have with God, that type of peace, that coexistence where there's quiet hostility. So today we're going to consider a different type of peace, a peace that truly comes as we continue our journey towards Bethlehem and Christmas Day during the season of Advent. I've spent the first little bit here telling you what the peace of God is not. No, I hope that we can explore together what it is in light of those things. In order to do this, I'm going to use some real-life examples, things that we can see and grapple with and, 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 and understand. And they're very simple examples that we all have probably been touched by or have experienced in some way. They're the examples of marriage and the example of adoption. These are obviously biblical examples or they're used in the Bible, both by Paul and Jesus, and they're used, I think, for a specific reason, and I think it's because these are things that we can relate to. These are words that do have definition, and they define our relationship with one another, but they mean so much more to us than just defining our familial ties, Recently, these examples were cast in a new light for me through a book that my wife uh, has been reading. One of her favorite Christian authors is Ann Voskamp, and Ann Voskamp wrote a book called Waymaker, and Amanda, when I was prepping for this sermon, said, I, I, I want to read something to you from it, and I'm so glad she did. And Ann used these two examples, marriage and adoption, and she made some great observations about them, and I'm going to share those observations with you through my own life experience. When I got married to Amanda, we were legally bound to each other at that moment. When we adopted Eleanor, she legally became ours in every way, even though she was not born to us biologically. But I didn't marry Amanda legally, or merely to be legally bound to her. We didn't adopt Eleanor only to be listed as the parents on her birth certificate. The marriage ceremony had to happen. The adoption trial had to take place. But 
neither of those events were the purpose. It wasn't the purpose of our marriage for us just to experience the wedding day, and it wasn't the purpose of our adoption just to go through the trial and have her name changed. Those were the gateways into the real gift. I married Amanda, I'm sorry this is, if this is going to cause her to blush, in order to be her lover, her best friend. I adopted, we adopted Eleanor for the privilege of getting to raise her to provide for her and to experience the fullness of joy of life that she has to bring. And guess what? That's exactly what has happened. And when the Lord makes peace with us, it's not a call to merely exist alongside him without causing too much trouble. It's not a merely cold legal agreement Although it is a legal agreement, to be sure, but it is more than that at the same time. It is a call to be fully reconciled to him and live at rest with him, to be attached. Maybe that word's a good word for us this morning. Attached to him in the very ways we see above through marriage and adoption. Now, reconciliation preassumes something. It preassumes that the two parties that are being reconciled were at least at one time, even if it was very, very, very long ago, at peace with one another. And indeed, this is what we find in mankind's story concerning God in the garden. We were at peace with the Lord. We walked with him, it says, in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve had no envy of God. They had no disdain towards him. And he experienced nothing but full joy in him. They caused him no pain, no sorrow. But we all know how the story goes. Out of their desire to replace God as the sovereign of the universe, they reached out and tried to take for themselves what only belonged to God, the knowledge of good and evil. This, of course, is not only their story, but it's ours as well. We, while we were still sinners and separated from God, did this with no recognition or concern. And even now, we still tend to go that way, but hopefully, through the indwelling Spirit's work in our lives, we catch ourselves and we shy away from such foolishness. This act, this rebellion against God put us at enmity, war with God, The peace we had with him in the beginning was lost. And this is why there is even an offer of reconciliation to begin with. It is God's desire, and though we often do not recognize it, even the deepest desire of our own souls to live in this type of peaceful relationship with God that we once had, and that takes Deep, deep reconciliation and restoration that can only be found through the Christ child. While I was preparing for the sermon, I was in communication with Brooks Carlson. And my goodness, guys, what an absolute gift he is to this body. If you've not gotten the pleasure of getting with him sometime, you should. And he reminded me 
about something that I had once known um, and kind of forgotten. He reminded me that the word shalom, we all know that word or probably have heard it. The word shalom, which is literally translated as peace, that we see in the Jewish texts in the Old Testament and that, and that most Jewish and Hebrew people still use today to greet one another. They greet each other, shalom, shalom. It doesn't just mean like peace, have a nice day. I hope that you're kind of like at rest today. It actually means whole. If you look up shalom, it means full, complete, whole. That is the peace that we are called to with God through Christ. And this leads us to the manger. And so that's where we're going to put our attention now. This reconciliation comes not through a noble earthly king sitting on a golden throne, not with a mother who had the best physicians at her disposal and all the shiny things that you would imagine a prince being born into the earth, but rather in a dirty, humble stable to earthly parents who couldn't even afford a proper place for their child to be born. He was lowly. They didn't have a crib, and they had to lie him in a manger, a feeding trough for those of you who, who may not fully understand. That's what it is. It's, it's like the thing that our cattle eat out of. I'm not sure that it gets much more gentle than that. And if you're like me, it's easier to submit to Jesus when I think of him as the ruler of the world. It makes it easier for me to submit to him in that way, right? Uh, the, the, the holy king on the throne, sitting at the right hand of God with a scepter in one hand and a sword in the other. And of course to Satan and the demons and the enemies, that's exactly who he is. And that's exactly what he is to them. But to mankind, those who he desires to be reconciled with, that's not how he decided to present himself. He didn't decide to come born to a great king. He didn't decide to come like Aslan, a great and terrifying lion. No, instead, he chooses to reveal himself in the quiet of night without any human fanfare at all. Now, Understand, back in these times, especially whenever um, great kings or princes were born, this would have been looked forward to. We would have known there's a queen, there's a princess, somebody's pregnant. They're getting ready to give birth. They would have been up there in the palace. They would have had all the physicians. There would have been heralds ready. Is it a boy? Is it a girl? Is it a boy? Is it what is it? It's a boy. We've got a new king. We've got a new heir. They would have went out in the streets and they would have screamed. And they would have told everyone, a new king is born. A new king is born. And everybody would have been so excited. They would have been sitting there having their little royal watch parties like we do, minus the funny hats. And they would have been, maybe their hats were funnier, I'm not sure. But they would have been there all excited, ready to go. And yet this is not what happens with Jesus, at least not in quite the same way. Nobody was waiting around. 
As a matter of fact, there were only at this point really only two people that knew what was happening. Joseph and Mary. And you have to wonder if maybe they were even going, oh man, did we get this right? I really hope we got this right. So God takes care of all that for us, doesn't he? He sends his heralds so that we wouldn't miss it. So that the most magnificent event ever to take place on earth up to that point wouldn't go unnoticed. He sends angels. And of course he sends them to like really rich and high people, right? People that have a high degree of importance. No, 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 that's actually not. He sends them to a field outside of Bethlehem, a small town, not even a really great town, but a small town. And there's these shepherds sitting in this field. And all of a sudden there's a great heavenly host of angels and they are the ones that pronounce to these shepherds what's about to happen and then the shepherds, they go into the town and they gotta see for themselves, Is this, could this really be true? I mean, we just saw angels. Surely this has to be right. They go and yep, there's the baby, just like we were told. And they praise and they worship him and then they immediately go out into the streets and the heralds that start telling the people about the coming of the great king, the one true king, the one born of God, aren't people with beautiful long robes. They're dirty shepherds and they are in awe and they start telling everyone else, why do it this way? I mean, was, was God just trying to make some sort of a social statement? Was he like trying to shame the rich, you know? Was this like, oh, you know, you guys think you're so high and mighty, I'm going to put you in your place. I'm not saying there wasn't a degree of that, but I don't actually think that was probably the main reason. I think he probably did this so that it wouldn't look like and be all showy like all the other ones were, you know, like... Oh, look at all this greatness and let's put on all this pomp and fanfare whenever there was really no greatness at all. Those people were just human. And maybe their decisions were right, maybe they weren't. The only thing that set them apart was that they had noble blood and really that's no different than the shepherd, is it? No, I, I don't think he wanted it to be showy. I don't think he wanted it to be glam and glitter. I think he wanted it to be gentle. And so I'm going to send shepherds. I'm going to send a baby in a manger. This is going to be the way I come to you to make peace. The Son of God who was with God and was God laid his glory down. That's an incredibly important part of the Christmas story and one our children sang about this morning in order to offer us not an olive branch of some symbolic piece of coexistence with one another, but something much more and much greater. He came to offer himself the peace that comes through the Christ child on Christmas morning is a complete and total restoration of the relationship we had with him in the garden. And I can't come up with a better way to present it than the way God did it in the beautiful nativity story that we have. Now there's an opportunity for us here as we examine the peace that Jesus brings into the world in his coming. 
upon deeper examination, we see that one of the fiercest expressions of the peace and reconciliation that we have with God as sons and daughters of his is found not only in our praise and our doctrine, but also in our action. So if you will, turn with me, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. If you don't have your Bibles, the verses should be up on the screen here for you. And I'm going to read to us Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, and guys, this is the Christmas story, by the way. I want you to understand that even though this is Ephesians and it's not taking place in the manger in the nativity scene, this is the Christmas story for us. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to us, to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Let's do that again. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, both. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Because we have been reconciled to God, we are called to be reconciled to one another. You notice that shift right there. We've up to this point been talking about being reconciled with God and how God made peace with us. And that's the ultimate. But it doesn't stop there. It goes out from there into us being made right and reconciled with one another. So we should take great care not to count peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ as trivial. Peace with God is best expressed to both God and the world through the action of living at peace with others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Now, in the Beatitudes, Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers. I'd like to point out quickly that he says peacemakers and not peacekeepers. That's a sermon in and of itself, and we're not going to go there this morning. We are encouraged by Paul to strive to live at peace with each other as best we can. Strive, the language that is used there. And in the scriptures above, the ones I just read you, it's above on my tablet, um, we are told that Christ himself is our peace. Now, just as he has fully restored us to himself, he has called us to live at peace with one another. Now, I want to take a look at the context of this last text that I just read to you, okay? It'll help, I think, for us to, to wrap our minds around the situation then. The Jews and the Gentiles had lived for years in complete and total estrangement from one another. This can be traced back to the election of Israel to be God's light to all nations. Now, on the surface, just that fact in and of itself shouldn't have caused any issues. God said, we've got a fallen creation. I'm going to choose these people. I'm going to set them apart to be a light, to, to, to really show the rest of the world how they ought to be, the type of people that I am trying to have them to be. But we know that because the hearts of men are always given and bent towards their own self-interest, that it, in fact, would cause a great many issues. Instead of doing what they were supposed to do, for one, Israel would actually fail to be the light many, many, many times and in many ways. And at times they would even hold their election. We are God's people over the heads of Gentiles who were, in that text we read above, far off from God. And trust me, that after a while causes a little hostility, right? Kind of like the older brother or if we think back to the story of Joseph, oh, I'm father's favorites. How did that turn out for Joseph? How did his brothers feel about that? Not real good. Now, that's not to say that the Gentiles are blameless either. The Gentiles, being far off from God, hated the things of God. And when they saw the Israelites getting it right, and when they saw the Israelites acting in the way God told them to act, they disdained the Israelites because they disdained God. And therefore, deep hostility and even wars and murders and killings and racism and all the isms that you can think of take place and there is deep, deep, deep hostility. It even echoes into today. And it was super prevalent in the time of this scripture and in the time when Jesus came. But through Christ, God made a way for both parties the scripture says, to be made right with himself and to be at peace with God himself. And now, because both sides are made right with God and peace with God, it is only right that they should be made right with one another. As a matter of fact, the mere, the mere fact that they are both made right with God on paper means that they are one, right? At peace with each other, right? That no hostility remains, Evidently, that wasn't the case or else Paul wouldn't have written this. 
there were problems still happening in the church between these two people who had come to peace with God. They'd been made right with God. They loved the Lord and they were genuinely seeking him. And Paul still says, hey, he comes to preach peace to those of you who are far off and to those of you who were near because they needed to hear it. Now that, once again, may not sound much like the Christmas story, but let me show you how it is. One of the lines in our children, that our children sang this morning, whenever they sang to us in the second verse there, goes like this. It says, mild he, Jesus, lays his glory by, kind of like by the side. Mild he lays his glory by. Simply put, Christ left the glory he had in heaven as part of of the Godhead to take on flesh in order to make peace between us and God. Can you imagine anything more humiliating and unfair? Why should he have to be the one to go to such lengths to be made right with us? Wasn't it us who committed the offense? Wasn't it us who rebelled? And yet, because there was no other way, because we would never, left to our own devices, come to him, he came to us. And he made peace with us. And this is the example that we're given when it comes on how we ought to make peace with one another. I don't know your specific situation. Perhaps there is one running through your mind at this very minute. It's possible that the Spirit has put the face of a person in your mind and you know, oh my, I need to go be made right with that person. It's also possible that you're playing the little games. It's really their fault. It's not safe. And, and, and listen, I, I don't know your situation. It probably should be approached with a lot of prayer, probably even some counsel and some help. Try not to let that turn into gossip, but at the same time, it's totally okay to need to process some things with other faithful brothers and sisters on how you might approach that situation. But if God has done that, if God has in this moment made you aware of a situation, then I'm just going to urge you, please don't let it just go on by. Don't be okay with coexistence. Don't say, well, we're not actively at war with one another right now, so... I guess we're at peace. I'm not sure that is always the case. Now, I'm not promoting the fantasy that you'll be able to achieve full restoration in every situation. I, I, I'm not one of these idealists that believes in world peace that even as desirable as a thing that might be that somehow it's going to be something that comes about this side of the second coming. It's just not going to happen. But do not be content with that warlike coexistence that's not the prize that we've been called to that's not the peace that we have been given with God and it's not the peace he's called us to with one another so this is a challenge for you God has made peace with us and now let us go and make peace with man where we can I'm going to begin to wrap things up and I'm going to invite the band to come back up and they're going to play a few songs for us. And I want to leave us with a couple final thoughts here. 
Oftentimes at Christmas, we see written on a sign or spelled out in light some rendition of the saying, don't forget the reason for the season. Kind of a tacky, fun little saying there. And now typically whenever you hear that, you'll see somewhere close by, if you see that on a sign or something, you'll see a picture of Jesus and the, and the shepherds and the, the manger and the nativity scene and and that's great, but you know what, that, that, that picture isn't, in one sense, it is perfectly adequate. I mean, the coming of Jesus in the scene that we have come to associate with that event is a great reminder, but in another sense, it, it really fails to communicate the reason for the season. Perhaps you, like myself, often think too much about the event at Christmas time, and not enough about the purpose of the event just like the marriage and the adoption example I gave you earlier. The ultimate reason for the season is not merely the story, as beautiful as it is. The reason for the season is that God has given us an opportunity to slow down, turn our eyes to him, and what he did by coming. Just as the wedding day exists for a lifelong binding of two hearts, the nativity exists for the binding of our souls with God and eternal peace through full restoration and reconciliation. By mildly laying his glory by and taking on flesh and coming to earth, he crossed the chasm that we couldn't and that I dare say wouldn't even if we could. He came in peace in order to offer us peace, not a cold, removed, impersonal peace, but a deeply profound, rich peace. This is the reason for the season. And if you're hearing this here today and you're not living in that peace with God, you've never ever entered into it, you didn't even know that such a peace was possible till today, Day, then I urge you that today can be the day. Today can be that day. There's really nothing stopping you from God's side of the equation. He's made the way perfectly clear back to him. Now that isn't to say it doesn't take some action. It does. There's a reason we call it coming to Jesus. It isn't because he is far off and you have to work to get to him, that you have to somehow strive to get to this peace with him. All you have to do is answer the door. In the scriptures, we're told that Jesus sits at the door and he knocks and whoever comes and opens and that door, he will come and he will sit with them and he will dine with them. And the picture of the garden has come back, right? We are sitting there with God at peace with him. How great, how precious is this? This is the gift that Christmas is to offer you today. This peace with God, and if you've never tasted it, boy, I urge you today, let this be the day. And if you have tasted it, if you've accepted that, if you've signed the marriage certificate, if you've signed the adoption birth certificate and you have been made legally right with God, I just simply ask you this. Is he in? You've opened the door. He's in. He's sitting at the table. Are you in the other room watching TV? Yeah, you're at peace with God. You're in the same house. You're coexisting. But he's at the table waiting patiently, quietly, gently beckoning you. Hey, I'm ready when you are. And maybe you're just distracted. Maybe you've not entered into that sort of a deep reconciliation with him. And the same 
urge is for you today. Today is the day. Do not let it pass by. Let this Christmas season be something more than presents and gifts and stress and cookies. It's made for more than that. It's why we have it. And this morning, we're actually going to come to the table in a more literal sense, even. What an awesome opportunity. The reason these elements are here on these tables is because Christ, on the day that he left, right before he was led to the cross, sat down with his disciples and he said, I want to dine with you. At peace with you. He even kicked out the one guy that didn't belong there. He said, just us. Just one last time. And they reclined. And they dined together. And he said, hey, here. I'm giving you these elements. Here's bread. Here's wine. This bread is my body. This, this cup, this wine, it's my blood. You'll understand this all in a few days. And in the future, whenever you sit at this table across from one another and you take the bread and you take the wine, remember me. Remember what I did. Remember what I brought about. Why I came into the world, the way I came into the world, the things I taught, and what I achieved for us on the cross. Us. We are made right again. So as you come and you take these elements this morning, don't let it be anything less than that. And as you go about your lives and as you go and you try to be made right with others that you know you need to be made right with, live at peace with others, in that sense, perhaps, the lesser being made right with man can point to the greater being made right with God. Let's worship together and let's share in this beautiful, beautiful display that God has given for us of being made right and being put at peace with him.